0: Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burrus. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is John Mueller, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. He is also a member of the Political Science Department and senior research scientist with the Mershon Center for International Security Studies at Ohio State University. His new book is The Stupidity of War, American Foreign Policy and the Case for Complacency. Welcome back to the show, John.
1: Thanks. for nice to be here.
0: Your title is provocative in two ways. First, how is war stupid?
1: Well, I think war has always been stupid. <laughs> uh, depends on your values, obviously. Uh, but um, it only became, people c- basically didn't come to really realize that until th- the 20th century. In other words, it wasn't that, there were the occasional people saying, "War oh, it's really stupid, it's ugly, disgusting, and so forth. Uh, but it was countered previously, before World War I, by the notion that war is really beautiful, glorious, uh, clean, cleansing, redemptive, progressive, and that peace, peace was decadent and filled with bovine content, as one person put it. Um, it was only after World War I, I think that there was this really broad consensus um, that it was really basically stupid, the kind of thing that people basically agree now. But if you said that before the war, You'd be shouted down by all these people who said how wonderful war was. And the only thing peace was good for was to maintain a, uh, you know, get ready for the next war. Uh, war was extremely common. We're talking basically about international war and war uh, in Europe in particular. And so there's a huge change in attitudes in war uh, t- toward war at the time of World War I. Because it, uh, and you can see that quantitatively. Uh, it's very easy to find people saying the things I've just been saying before World War I. It's virtually impossible to find anybody saying that after the war. So it it goes from a lot, hundreds, thousands. I can give you thousands of of examples to virtually zero. So that I, my thesis is that it's very consequential.
2: Given what you've just said, I guess I'm a little bit confused about what you mean by a consensus that war is stupid because not too long ago we recorded an episode of this podcast with our colleague John Glazer on the way that the Washington foreign policy establishment works. And the Washington foreign policy establishment seems to be filled with lots of people who certainly don't act as if – War is stupid. They're always calling for us to get into new wars, to stay in existing wars, to escalate, um, and looking down their noses at those of us who say, you know, maybe we should disengage a bit. Maybe we shouldn't use quite as much kinetic military action. So are those people exceptions to the consensus that war is stupid, or do they mean something? Is there something else going on?
1: No, there, there, there are people, basically what you're talking about is mili- what you said, military action and actually being prepared for war and using it around the fringes. But essentially, there's only been two wars, two international wars in this whole century. Both of them started by the kind of people you're talking about, incidentally. Uh, the 9-11 wars against Afghanistan and against, um, and against Iraq, both of which degenerated. Uh, but, uh, if you look at Europe as a whole, for example, since World War II, um, there's not been a single substantial international war in a continent that used to be the most warlike in the world. Um, and in fact, Europe no- has now been free from international war for the longest period of time since the word Europe was invented about 2,500 years ago. So I think that's consequential. What, what you do have uh uh is playing around at the fringes as I say basically there's hardly anything resembling real international wars anymore particularly in the last few decades uh, but you do have people playing around in the sense of uh intervening in each other's civil wars you do have economic sanctions you do have lobbying cyber balloons um yeah and so there's and, and so there's, there's various things like that you can do but they're all short of war by my standard. A war, in my opinion, the way it's commonly defined, is a conflict between an international war, conflict between two countries in which at least a thousand battle deaths are suffered per year. Um, you, you also get there's also a fair number of little dinky wars, if that's what you want to call them. Uh, for example, there was just a border conflict a few months ago between China and India in which about a dozen people died. If you count that as a war, then obviously that's a war. Uh, but what, what's, what's impressive since night, particularly since 1945 and particularly in the last two, three decades is that although there have been border conflicts, the people doing the conflicts keep them very limited, uh, and keep them from escalating to a, to a real war. So they tend to take place in places where, uh, there's nobody, no people, uh, along borderlines or, and also where there's no garrisons. So the idea is not so much that warlike behavior, is completely gone but wars are um and so we have got sort of an anarchic situation in which the way i'd put it basically is overwhelmingly people have uh states there's a sort of a culture of peace in the world culture of um, uh, of a society of peace in which the the states essentially agree not to use mil- not to use war as an instrument to carry out their policy international war at one time, it was a standard way of doing things. So, so, so that's, that's really a major development. Um, and it's been growing since 1945. In 1945, Europe definitely, Europe and most of the developed world generally basically slumped into a lack of war. I mean, there's been no World War Three, right? I'm safe on that one, I hope. Um, and, um, gradually other countries around the world have fallen into step. For example, there are a fair number of wars between Israel and the Arab states, international wars, but the last one is in 1973. And there also were fairly substantial wars between India and Pakistan, but the last one of those is basically about that same time. Uh, there have been exceptions, the Iran-Iraq War. There was a war between Ethiopia and Eritrea at the very end of the 20th century, uh, but they've been really quite uh, low. There have been a lot of civil wars, and at one time there were c- colonial wars, but those died out with colonialism. So what, what? basically what we're dealing with is this society. Uh, so from a libertarian standpoint, it's sort of a perfect anarchy, almost perfect, imperfect anarchy, <laughs> uh, in which there is no government, and countries around the world need to work out their problems. I mean, they, they have disputes over borders, they have disputes over fisheries, they have disputes over trade, they have disputes over ethnic groups and stuff. And what they have, if they've give, truly given up the idea of using war to deal with them, they have to work out, uh, rules and regulations, laws. How far does the, how, you know, how far into the sea does the territorial, um, is, is part of the territory of the country next to it, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, but I think mostly what's happened is that, uh, the rules have come from the aversion to war. Uh, will give you a pedestrian example here, literally pedestrian, I guess. Um, we have a rule that you should only ride in, in on, the, on one side of the street. In Washington, that would be the right side of the street, London the left. Um, now, uh, it is not the case that people have become averse to being killed by oncoming traffic because they have to drive on one side of the street. Rather, the aversion to being killed by oncoming traffic is led to the rule. And so what you can can do is – so you basically get that worked out. It doesn't matter what side you pick, but everybody has to go along with it. And if the occasional misguided drunk drives on the wrong side, that doesn't invalidate the rule. So I think generally it's not that rules have been set up that have caused peace, but the desire for peace has caused the rules.
0: Now, it seems you you pinpointed World War I, uh, which – it has a few characteristics to it, this sort of mechanization of of death, things like tanks and sort of the astounding brutality of some of these things, in addition to a lot of pictures and images coming from the war, and then, of course, the the massive death tolls. So it seems that there might be a fairly easy explanation for this, like massive tech war technologies being used on a massive scale became much less desirable than cavalry charges between Napoleonic, uh, you know, in the Napoleonic wars. Um, so the, basically the brutality of war increased and so the desire for it decreased.
1: Yeah, I, 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 I don't think so. <laughs> I think basically he simply became repulsed by it. Um, you know, dysentery <laughs> to bring up probably the most common, uh, attribute of war wasn't invented in 1914. Neither were mud nor leeches and if you want to be killed, being shot by a bullet is probably a lot better than being hacked to death with a sword or penetrated with an arrow. Um, so basically, people for a long time, have, the disgusting aspect of war has been there for a long time. And what happened after World War I was that people were willing to see it. Let, and so they said, basically, let's not do that again. That also happened with slavery 100 years earlier. People started jumping down, up and down saying we shouldn't do slavery anymore, even though it's economically um, uh doing quite well. The Atlantic slave trade was booming. Uh, and the same thing with dueling. Uh, dueling was a way of, 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 dis- of, for centuries, a way of men of a certain class working out their disagreements by the end of the 19th century as re- regarded to be silly, stupid, ridiculous. Um, and I think that's basically what happened with, with war. I mean, uh, World War I, obviously, was a was a horrible catastrophe. But there are plenty of wars, you know, that were fought to total annihilation before that. There are plenty of wars were fought for things which are even more stupid. I mean, the, the most famous war in history or mythology is the one between the Greeks and the Trojans. It was fought over an errant wife, lasted 10 years and caused, and ended up with Troy being totally annihilated. The men killed, the women sold into sexual slavery and the place, uh, uh burned to the ground. So you uh, and the 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 30 years war in Europe was it was devastating. There's a rumor for a long time, a belief for a long time that 80 or 90% of the Germans died in it. That turns out that was just hyster- high, but people believed that. And no one said, that was really bad. Let's not do that anymore. Instead, they just kept going and assumed it was a way of life. So, uh before World War I, World War I is unique in only one respect that I can see. And that's that, um, it was, there was a peace movement, anti-war movement organized for the first, for the first time in history. I mean, been individually, you know, individual philosophers sitting on rocks saying war is a bad idea and so forth. But this is the first movement, the first time there was an organized movement. Um, uh, and it was, it was mostly ridiculed by it. And it was a gadfly movement. Um, uh, but it was attracting a fair amount of attention from politicians, uh, from financiers like Alfred Nobel. And Andrew Carnegie, um, and uh, and and socialists had it sort of built in somewhat too. So it was a, it was kind of a growing movement, but it was basically ridiculed as being effeminate and cowardly and materialistic. Uh, after the war, the people the arguments were were the standard uh, standard coin, and so there's this concentrated effort to try to stop international wars from happening again.
2: What exactly changed with the perception then? Because if it isn't as Trevor hypothesized, um, an increase in the brutality of war, um, and we certainly had, you know, it's it. Yes, there were photographs and some videos in the way that there hadn't necessarily been with, you know, the Thirty Years' War or the Trojan War, but um, there there still were accounts of the war, right? Like even Homer talks a fair bit about the brutality of the Trojan War. Like we weren't hiding that. Um, so what what change that suddenly made with World War I people willing to accept the brutality of war and willing to see it in a way that they hadn't been before?
1: Well, I've got a three-word answer. I don't know. Uh, you know, there, there is a phrase, ideas whose time has come. Uh, you know, democracy started in big countries only about 200 years ago, 250 years ago democracy was known about for millennia, uh and then suddenly it was starting with the United maybe the United States, Switzerland, Britain and so forth, just started doing it. Uh, it wasn't a new idea. Um, and so uh and so why didn't that start five hundred years before that or a thousand years before that? It didn't, uh, except in small enclaves. So um what it I can I can definitely guarantee what I've said earlier, quantitatively, that before war, World War I, there are all these people saying this. I can give you a chapter and verse over and over again. These are not just uh, woolly militarists from Prussia, but they're philosophers, poets. I mean, Emile, Emile Zola, the French novelist, called War Life Itself. Uh, and there's a, uh, you know, th- this uh, philosopher, uh, uh, art critic uh, in Britain basically saying, you know, the world, you know, we, we can't get rid of war because it's so wonderful. Um, so it was just very common. Uh, uh, um, it is necessary. Igor Stravinsky, the composer, saying it's necessary for human progress. It's just sort of accepted. Starting after the war, you can find almost nobody that says that. Um, let me give you actually an example. I found a book. Actually, the book is mostly written. <laughs> and, I, and then I came across this, so I certainly put it in. Someone on Wikipedia has put a list of all the anti-war plays uh, w- uh, plays historically, which have been um, uh, uh, anti-war in their basic color. Uh, they got three plays for the ancient Greeks, two by Aristophanes and one by Euripides. And the next one is 1929. Um, I think they skip over, I would take Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida as being an anti-war play, but they may have made a few mistakes here and there. But basically then after the war, you know, the, the, the most, the second most popular uh, film, silent film of the silent era was, uh, Gore Vidal's, uh, uh, King Vidor's, um, The Big Parade, which is an anti-war film. It made tons of money. Big, big, uh, uh, novel like All Quiet on the Western Front, late in the 20s, a German, uh, 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 novel becomes a bestseller. So basically everybody is, everybody's against war. Um, and that's m- mostly continued.
0: One of the interesting things about wars, maybe intermittently, but it's quite common for when the war begins, it is perceived to be easy by some sides uh, that, you know, World War one would happen and, you know, the Brits would go over the continent and, you know, give Jerry a drumming and come back home by Christmas. And the civil war has a similar type of thing where the North doesn't think the South wants to fight and vice versa. Uh, One exception to that, however, Is World War II, and that's part of a general thing, is that is World War II kind of an exception, broadly speaking, from this? Because if we had established the stupidity of war, realized that we marched off unknowingly between 1914 and 1918 until the tunes of, you know, millions dead. um, But then World War II comes and that seems to be a non-stupid war that people went into knowing it would not be easy and it would cost a lot of lives, but it needed to be done.
1: Yeah, yeah, my book basically deals with since 1945. But Warlord, uh, war, uh, the one place where the militarism lasted was in Japan. You can still find, uh, if it, uh, when I said before, basically you can't find it anywhere. You can find it in Japan, but not anyplace else, certainly not in Europe. Um, so they were sort of primed for it. <coughs> and of course, they stumbled into this war themselves, uh, trying to, with an invasion of China and so forth. Uh, the other, the other war, um, and this is a very controversial part of the book, but I'll stand by it. I've been working on it for some time, was that World War II in Europe would not have started had it not been for Adolf Hitler. That is to uh, say, if you want to find a, somebody who really made a difference, it was him. It's very hard to see any other German. They, they had resentments and stuff from World War One. you know, that, that's all certainly true. But the idea of going to war to relieve it was simply not acceptable. John Keegan, um, uh, the uh, one of the major major um, military historians, said after World War I, there was only one European who wanted war, and that was Adolf Hitler. Uh, and I've looked at it quite extensively. The question is if he'd been run over by a truck, was there someone else that would do it? And there basically wasn't anybody. Uh, there's stuff about German public opinion. Um, and, the, and the German public was as afraid of another war as, as, as the French or the, or the Dutch or the, or, or the English. So, uh, Hitler was a world's, I uh, once called in the world, the history's supreme atavism. <laughs> um, <coughs> but anyway, then after the war, uh, that reifies everything. Uh, once again, you now instead of the League of Nations, you have the United Nations, you have outlawing of war, uh, uh coming in. Uh, you have, uh, uh millions of treaties and stuff to try to keep it keep it that way so in some respects uh, world war one is a a, a a cosmic disaster but the one in europe in particular was 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 not a stupid war it was necessary probably to do something about him um though he, he mostly self-destructed by over by massively overreaching uh but it it also reified the idea we shouldn't do international war anymore particularly in europe
0: and then shortly after world war Two, we get into Korea. And as you said, your book mostly focuses on post-45. Korea stands interestingly in the kind of Cold War story is that it might have been justified, at least in the sense that at least half that peninsula is not living under one of the worst and most despotic regimes we've ever seen. Uh, But was there something a little bit overwrought about Korea and the way that we, we perceived what was going on there?
1: Yes, I think so. In many respects, what happened was, you know, I mentioned before that people were using non-military or non-warlike d- d- uh, devices, and the uh, in in the case of Korea, uh, the, the the communist world definitely was not status quo. Uh, it definitely wanted to change things. It wanted to take over the world, if you want to call it that. But its techniques were not used to use a direct war. It was to use revolution. i said that they've said this a billion times a revolution, uh, 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 revolutionary civil wars, subversion, that kind of thing. And they certainly tried that, particularly by beefing up the communist parties in France and Italy, for example. But that was not starting a direct war by any means. The exception to that was when Kim Il-sung um, comes in and says, I'm, I'm sitting up here in, um, in, uh, in North Korea, a communist state, m- mostly fabricated by the, by the Russians. Soviets, uh, and I can take over South Korea, and so by by military force, by pushing, and the Stalin in Russia was actually quite reluctant to get into this mess. He pulled back America, the, uh, the Soviet troops so they wouldn't, if it escalated, the Soviet Union would not be pulled into it, and it turned into this this disastrous war. The United States, saying uh, I think, much overestimating the issue. Arguing that it was a, uh, it was showing that the revolutionaries are not willing to use direct war. And it seems to me this is a, a sort of a unique, bizarre case in a, at, at that time in an area which was extremely, um, uh, uh, you know, very much a backwater. It isn't anymore, but it was then. Um, and so, uh, but the interpretation was that if we don't fight there, we're going to have to fight World War III. That was an pre- almost precise quote from, from uh, from Harry Truman, uh, the problem was th- that uh, so the war was the, 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 war, the Korean War maybe the only war that was worth fighting that the United States has d- done since World War II in my my opinion. Um, but the problem was that uh, there was an extrapolation from that, uh, arguing that we have to really deter in a war by the Soviet Union, like against Western Europe. In fact, a lot of people at the time thought that the attack on West, on Korea is a, is a, is a uh, diversionary tactic, and they're really going to come across that full the gap and take over Western Europe. Complete nonsense, but, uh, you know, who knows at that time. Uh, but then the idea that they had to deter the Soviet Union from starting war, uh, document after document coming out of the Soviet archives indicates that was nonsense. They never in a million years wanted to get into anything that would be like World War I, or World War II, much less one with nuclear weapons. Um, the archives show that they, they had no plans for any kind of offensive wars. They did have plans in case they were attacked themselves. So there's basically a, a massive incre- uh, uh, exaggeration of the threat that the Soviet Union placed. They were right to suggest they wanted to support their revolution, coups, revolutionary civil war, but they are wrong to think that it was going to use a major war, direct old-fashioned war, international war in other words, Uh, to advance the cause.
2: But we don't have, at at the moment that we are thinking about declaring a war or engaging in a war, we don't have access to the archives of the people that we might be going to war against. And, And so a lot of this seems like there are, most wars are stupid, but you've listed some that weren't or maybe weren't. But how do we know going in If a war is stupid or not, I mean, we can tell after the fact when we've, you know, assessed all the information, but we can't. We've got to make a decision right now. Are there important signs we can look for to say this war is leaning in the stupid direction?
1: Well, um, my argument basically is people come to agree that all all international wars are stupid, Uh, and so they don't start them. (laughs) I mean, the the point is that we haven't had any, (laughs) you know, had, had very few international wars since World War II. Um, of any sort, any place in the world, in a declining number, and almost zero in this century already. So essentially, um, you can certainly, certainly see that um, in the public opinion. In do we really want to get into a war with Iran, for example? I think that's uh, the, the the response is not not on my not not uh, no, definitely not. So generally speaking, there, there's been issues, there've been problems, there've been border conflicts and so forth. But people said, well, we, uh, what we don't want to do is get into a situation which escalates to a real war. Occasionally, there there have been some wars, of course, since World War II, international wars, uh, but they've been really quite rare. So my argument is that those wars didn't seem stupid necessarily to the guys starting them at the beginning. Um, but mostly what's happened is anytime you bring up the idea of war, the response is, that's really stupid. Let's not do that. Um, in other words, we want to take over some of my, you know, Costa Rica's territory. Well, we'll do it by diverting a river, you know, <laughs> uh, and we'll do it in a place where there isn't any people, and where there isn't any garrison, uh, and where they basically can get away with it because they don't really care about that territory anyway. So we can nip off things, or we can poach somebody's fish, um, or or we can exact economic sanctions. There's various things we can do, but uh, these are seen to be an alternative to war. Uh, is suggesting essentially that using real war, which was used to be common currency in the olden days, uh, before 1914 in Europe in particular, uh, is no longer an acceptable means. Um, and, uh, an analogy with we have dueling. I mean, why don't young men duel anymore? I mean, you could even do it legally, like with boxing gloves. But now what you get is a situation in which they have the same disagreements. I don't think there's any evidence that testosterone levels have gone down. They still get mad over various matters of honor and being disrespected and so forth, uh, and particularly over women. Um, and but they don't even think about fighting a duel over it. Now, what that can do is increase incivility. <laughs> in other words, if you go, you know, in, if you're in the dueling class, and you walk up to somebody at a fancy costume ball and say you're a bloody liar. Or as happens in Tolstoy's novel, War and Peace, your wife has been sleeping around. Uh, what you can expect would be in the old days, you'd be challenged to a duel. So therefore you might say, I, even though everybody, you know, everybody knows that's true, what you were saying, um, that going to the duels might have unpleasant consequences. So you'd be deterred from going to, to, to from insulting this guy for the fear that you might be called into a duel. Now, now that's gone away. So now you can walk up and say your wife has been sleeping around. There might be some consequences, like he might take a poke in your mouth, poke, uh, poke you in the face, or he might try to sue you, or he might try to down, you know, denigrate you outside and so forth. All kinds of things, slander, et cetera, whatever. So you can do all those kinds of in, uncivil things, uh, uh, and 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 and. But but basically, you don't have to worry about being uh, into a duel. And I think that's basically what's happening with war. Uh, people can be intemperate. Uh, they can. Uh, they can. Uh, they can and certainly. They've intervened in other people's civil wars, which usually didn't happen. Um, but they don't get into wars directly themselves. International wars.
0: You seem, you know, very confident. Going, going a little back to Aaron's question, that during the Cold War, um, during this time when the American foreign policy establishment assumed that the Soviet Union was hellbent on expansion, even via military expansion and that it would be a domino theory. It would sort of take over if you had, you know, if you had Mexico become a communist satellite state, that was going to be bad for America. Um, everyone thought this at the time, um, which is interesting for your thesis because it, it, it both assumes maybe that is your argument being that we thought that the USSR really wanted war and the USSR thought that we wanted war. Um, but actually both of us had learned, that war was stupid, e- even with or without nuclear weapons, but definitely with nuclear weapons?
1: Yeah. And well, that's that's basically what happened. It's called a security dilemma. And it's uh, some people call it a tragedy. I think it's more like a farce. Um, you know, I do something to pre- pre- protect myself against you, and you get thinking that, well, the reason he's doing that is because he wants to start a war, so therefore we have to arm and so forth. Um, the containment idea that they might take over countries was perfectly plausible um they uh, they took over obviously the communist advance in cuba uh they took over north vietnam they obviously took over china in 1949 and so forth um so they they uh, but that was part of their game plan uh the the marxism, marxism leninism, leninism was the the wave of the future and so forth um but what happened was almost comically as in a retrospect was that contain? And so the idea, basically, was very, very, to have containment to keep these people from advancing, um, and then they'd eventually mellow from within. Was the idea? Uh, well, what happened was the opposite. Namely, after 1975, a whole bunch of countries suddenly fell into the communist orbit: Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia in Southeast Asia; three countries in Africa; a couple in Latin America; South Yemen, and then Afghanistan. And all these countries descended, and so they joined the, the you know, the Soviet empire willingly, or the Soviet, uh, um, uh, camp. And, um, what happened was that, um, the Soviets then found that they all turned the, almost all turned into economic and political and often military basket cases filled with civil war, the worst one being Afghanistan. So the Soviet Union came to realize that they would have been better off contained. At first, they thought the correlation of forces, as they called it, was really moving in their direction. And so they're really happy about it. But then, um, they realized it was not. And that was one of the things that, um, that these things were j- basically a burden. And that affected Gorbachev quite, quite a bit, about quite a bit. And he basically changed the ideology. So containment worked best when it failed.
2: What role does threat inflation? play in this because that seems to be a pretty common thing in Washington and there's you know as we're recording this we're waiting for the FDA to decide if it's going to let people start taking the Johnson and Johnson vaccine again and there's lots of criticism of this decision on the grounds that there's a vanishingly small threat that is likely much smaller than other threats but the FDA's incentives are to latch on to small threats and respond to those, um, and and to kind of act as if they're bigger because they're the threats in its, you know, in its wheelhouse, I suppose. And there's something similar happens, it seems like, in foreign policy. So what, what is threat inflation, and does it does it play a part in this story, both in the story of convincing us that war is stupid because we've seen threats inflated, but maybe also in convincing us. It's not because we've been told that threats are bigger than they are.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the main themes of the book is looking at threat inflation. And one of the ones I just it was mentioned that the idea they basically inflated the threat that the Soviet Union was willing to start World War III, for example. Um, and we now have, you know, they had to be careful at the time. And who knows, you know, you have limited evidence and so forth. But we know a lot more now. And basically, there was no danger of war. Uh, and I have a, even on the Cuban Missile Crisis, for example. Um, uh, but uh, that basically is continuing, and I think we've, we're continuing to inflate threat. Uh, terrorism after 9-11 in particular was pretty terrible, but I've written a lot about that in, in this book and other books, uh, that we massively inflated the degree to which international terrorism is a threat. Um, 9-11 was a horror, but it, it stands out. As being an extreme outlier, there's never been another terrorist event before or after nine eleven in war zones or outside war zones that inflicted even one tenth as much total destruction. so by seeing that as the wave of the future, which is a standard way a standard belief right after nine eleven in the intelligence community, was b- basically nonsense and it impelled us into these two s- sort of preventive wars, supposedly in Afghanistan and Iraq, which would never would have happened without it and currently. The book also deals with current threats. And it seems to be that the, the, the big two that people worry about are Russia and China, uh, both of those growing in, in concern within the, within the Beltway. And I just think it's nonsense. Uh, both countries obviously want to feel their weight. Both, cons, both countries are certainly uh, doing things from a civil liberty standpoint, which are reprehensible, also from an economic liberty standpoint, uh, foolish. Uh, but they aren't, uh, expansionary in the sense of Hitler wanting to take over new territory with the exception of, uh, China trying to want to get Taiwan back. So while they're a pain in the neck, um, they, um, and there's definitely parts of their policy that, that I certainly find abhorrent as do most other Americans. Uh, nonetheless, it's not, it's, it's not a threat and not a security threat. Um, and uh, and dealing with it, and the same thing with nuclear proliferation, uh, it's not clear that that makes much difference if Korea has a bomb, North Korea has a bomb or not. Um, uh, it, it's not clear that that's really uh, a problem overall. Uh, so you can deal with it calmly, even complacency, even complacently, as says in the subtitle of the book, because um, I don't think we have security threats that require uh, much more than that.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask about because at the beginning I said there are two controversial statements in the title, the stupidity of war and complacency, the case for complacency. I mean, it's interesting because that has been the kind of attack that you lob on someone who criticizes American foreign policy. Being complacent is something that you cannot be. Um, now again, you know, we, we know from hindsight a bunch of these things are are not we're not as big of threats, but you know I remember after nine eleven anyone would have said that there would have been another terrorist attack within the next five years. People would have put a lot of money in saying that there would have been another big one um so when it comes to complacency like North Korea and a nuclear weapon um I mean we don't want no nuclear weapons in the hand of hands of completely maniacal dictators it would seem to me um so like i mean maybe complacency when it comes to some of these threats but like when it comes to ones that could turn really serious like is there still a case for complacency
1: well there's been no more maniacal dictator than joseph stalin um and he was also going crazy at the end and or or mao zedong um so um just because they're maniacal dictators doesn't mean they use the the weapons uh the north korean weapon is mostly obviously to deter the united states who's threatened to wipe it out repeatedly rid the world of evil is George W. Bush. But, and I'll also tell you where the evil is North Korea, Iraq and Iran. Um, so the, the North Koreans obviously got a bit exercised about that. So I don't, um, the problem with the, um, uh, atomic obsession, as they call it, is that worrying so much about proliferation kills people. The, uh, war in, uh, Iraq has killed hundreds of thousands of people, and it was an anti-proliferation war. So nuclear weapons have killed nobody since 1945, but efforts to stop them have killed hundreds of thousands of people, stop them from proliferating. So being complacent in the case of North Korea, there's no way you're going to negotiate those out. They think they need them for their security. What you can do is try to help North Korea become a normal country. I think there's some real pro- real poss- possibilities on under Kim Jong Un, he's actually reversed previous policy in that way. So, I think there's 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 uh, distinct possibilities. Other places like Afghanistan, uh, what um, the Russians and the Chinese want to play a bigger role in the world, and the question is, why not bring them in on Afghanistan? They don't want Afghanistan to be unstable. They're as they're worried about Islamist extremists as anybody in the world, uh, uh, in, 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 uh, because they have problems with it in their own countries they think. So why not uh, bring them in? Why not work with Russia to try to stabilize the situation in Syria, the disaster? Uh, Assad now has won. And uh, one possibility is to try to work to stabilize that situation as much as possible, allow refugees to go back and uh, work with Assad or against Assad, if necessary, with the Russians to keep him from uh, uh engaging in you know vengeful re, re, uh, result uh, actions so they anyway the point is working with these people obviously you have to work with them in, uh, on other things such as pandemics refugees global warming and so forth uh there are a lot of other places where they could be uh useful if it doesn't work it doesn't work but it seems to me they should be they should be tried yeah they, they should not be seen as as enemies i think overall uh, they are opponents. They may be competitors in some sense, rather, but I don't think they're out to take over the world. They may want to play a bigger role in it. They certainly want to develop economically. Um, and I don't see those as being necessarily uh, terrible uh, uh, goals.
0: It seems weird that um, almost the inverse, if you speak to a, a standard, I mean, not even just a conservative, like a, a, a mainstream liberal. They would. Most of them would say, over the post-war period, America's military strength uh, was paramount to keep to keeping the world order in check, keeping communists in check, protecting Western Europe, making sure we didn't have communism run across South America. You name it, and it seems that your thesis is is radically the opposite. To the point that you know, it would have people scratching their heads. Essentially, that except for maybe North Korea. If America did nothing, if if our military was was you know the size hundred billion dollars a year, you know a fraction of what it is now. If America did nothing, things wouldn't have been radically different in terms of the world order. But you know, except for you know we'd have fewer people dead in Vietnam and stuff like that. But I mean, is that essentially that everything kind of played itself out, and American military prowess kind of did nothing in that equation in the post-war period?
1: Yeah, well, that's uh, that's one of the themes of the book. It's not clear that American military has been necessary. It's one achievement was, as you say, keeping South Korea from being taken over by the communists, and that's why it seems to me that that might have been a war worth fighting. Uh, but otherwise, um, the idea that, for example, France and Germany would have gone to war but for the United States is absurd. Um, you know, what you have to do is find me a friend, somebody in France. Somebody in Germany over the last 75 years has gotten on a soapbox and said, we used to be so good at getting into wars. Let's do it again. Um, so the idea that you have to have a security community or a coal and steel community or the Americans or NATO or anything to stop them from going to war is basically absurd, it seems to me. Um, the, uh, the, the 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 In case of the coal and steel community, uh, which of course, led into the common market and so forth, uh, was uh, initially th- was mainly an anti-war thing. In other words, they had the coal and steel community because they wanted to reduce the danger of war. My opinion is that basically because they didn't want to go to war, things like the coal and steel community is something you could seriously consider, integrating the economies in one way or the other. Uh, to, to everybody's mutual advantage. So what happens is if you have if if war basically becomes extremely unlikely, then certain things happen, like you might go over there and see if they have something you you want to buy or sell. Maybe you'll cut a deal, maybe not. If you think you're going to go to war with them every five years or every ten years, then obviously uh, that's a real stricture on 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 what uh, you know the economic development. So it, it it's not at all clear that anybody would have gone to war if, if, if because of the United States. Europe has remained peaceful because for Europe wanted to be peaceful. The Soviet Union never had any idea of starting another war, um, and uh, it's not clear that other places, in the case of Vietnam, the United States uh, might have kept Vietnam from falling to the communists in 1965, instead it fell in 1975. And of course, now, by the way, Vietnam is sort of our bosom buddy in that area. So it's not at all clear that we need the United States for Pax Americana. And people who say otherwise have to show me exactly where two countries are about ready to go to war. Turkey and Greece, maybe, where they basically saw that. And uh, and the United States stepped in and said, no, you're not going to war. I think it's very hard to find anything like that.
2: But maybe there's a case that we, well, we might not have examples of the United States explicitly stepping in and saying, hey, knock it off, guys. The, the very presence of not just that the United States is there with a the large military, but that the United States has a history of actually using it acts as as a deterrent to them even getting to the point where we need to, you know, get between them and separate them.
1: What country are you talking about?
2: I'm thinking of, I mean, the examples that I've heard people talk about would be, so Iran and Iran wanting to take over more of the Middle East, um, Iraq that, you know, did invade its neighbor, uh, possibly India and Pakistan, Um, China might – you know, have longer term plans to be a little bit more ambitious, like what they're doing in Hong Kong and what they might do to Taiwan, like those sorts of things that maybe just the United States and its history of using its muscle is kind of preventing them from, from like wanting to go to war yeah, well, in the first place.
1: Yep. You, you have to see where that, uh, show where that's true. In the case of Iran, they're obviously want to play a bigger role in the Middle East and they have their own, you know, groups that they prefer and so forth. And they seem whatever the United States does, they seem to have been able to do that. The United States has tried to punish them, not with military force so much, but with sanctions, and that does not seem to change their policy in the slightest. So it's not clear that uh, any of any of that yeah. makes that much difference. On the
0: Taiwan on the Taiwan point though, this one seems to be pretty salient because we know Xi Jinping's writing has made explicit that the, the part of the designs is to take Taiwan back for China. We know that. And it, it seems to me that the biggest thing that would be keeping them from doing that is wondering whether or not we would get involved. And that, and that only matters because we have a significant enough military that it would matter if we got involved.
1: Yeah, well, the biggest thing actually would be uh, what would happen to its own reputation and its own economy if we were to do that. Um, the, 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 the Russians were able to take over Crimea in 2014. And uh, they may have gained some territory, but it certainly didn't do many good economically. And, and you know, they got really hit by a lot of stuff, much of it um, natural in the sense that people trust them less, are willing to invest less. More people you know, get money out of the country, capital flight and so forth. And I think China would have to worry about that big time. Uh, Taiwan is probably pretty capable of defending itself. There's only a few beaches where you can land a landing force. And uh, amphibious landings is probably the hardest tactic in in warfare, and fails more often than anything else. So, um, it, I think you're right. Basically, to point to that as a problem, uh, the ambiguity of the American uh, entrance probably does play into the Chinese hands. But they've long said basically that we think long term on this. We got a long, 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 long history, and eventually we want to we want these guys to come around. And the question now is is whether they really want to do it very soon. Um and it and um I'm not sure, but I think pretty pretty much that they don't. Uh the the, the, the cost of doing so with their untried and extremely corrupt military uh would be uh would be very high, even if they are successful. Uh and even if the United States didn't intervene. Furthermore, if they did intervene and the United States didn't uh directly get involved, it could do other things like harassing like sanctions, like supporting rebels within Taiwan. It's also the case that they, they the Chinese have find they're having, they had a lot of difficulty containing secessionist elements and anti-China elements within Hong Kong. If they now take over Taiwan, they're going to have a much bigger problem along that line. They have to finesse that too. So there's a lot of things that can deter them from going. Um, the, the Taiwanese also have very good early warning systems, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they are obviously much smaller. But the, the the Chinese military is pretty much untested. Uh, the last time it fought a war was in 1979 against North Vietnam, and it did not go very well. So I, there's various things, reasons you can think of that. But I, I think that is by far the most important area of concern in terms of potential warfare. Yeah, yeah. The, the Taiwan thing, which I mentioned earlier on.
0: One of the things that we've seen in the last five years was is a – kind of collapsing of the previous agreement that free trade is a good thing. And I had sort of thought that we reached a point that we all kind of came around to understand that free trade was a good thing. And and now that is not the case anymore. And part of the same – some of the things that animate anti-free trade arguments, nationalism, you know, desire to help your people over other people um, are similar to the kind of things that animate war uh, in many ways. Uh, so – in this sort of increasingly nationalistic world, at least in terms of trade, but also in a variety of different ways, uh, does it concern you that maybe this, this conclusion that so many, so, so much of humanity has reached that war is stupid is as fragile going forward as say the free trade consensus that did exist, that, that this is not something that we can rest assured will, will stick around?
1: Yeah, that's, that's why people dislike the argument because, you know, if Hitler could start a war, why can't someone else? If people can decide war is a really bad idea, why can't they just as quickly decide it's a good one? Um, and I, I have no answer to that because I don't know. Things do change. Skirt lengths go up and down. They don't only go up and they don't only go down. Um, baseball caps get worn backwards and frontwards, you know, at various times. Um, so I, I can't be certain. It is only what I'm basically arguing has only been a matter of change of opinion. On the other hand, there was a big change of opinion on slavery, and over a hundred years, formal slavery, at least, was limited from what was then known as Christendom. Um, and you don't see that coming back. There is informal slavery, there's illegal slavery and stuff, um, and and human trafficking and so forth. But you can't go to New Orleans and buy somebody. Um, no one is saying, you know, that was that was really good when we used to be able to buy people in New Orleans. They put them on there, and we look them over and so forth, and. And you have this property, and you can sell it, or you can keep it, or whatever. Uh, it doesn't come back. Uh, and, and similarly with dueling. I mean, why doesn't? I mean, you know, the, the causes for dueling are the same as they've ever been. Egos, in particular. Uh, people get very mad. Young men, in particular, um, and uh, they don't duel, except it, uh, in at least in the formal sense. So you'd have some with, like, sir, sort of street gangs with being disrespected and so forth. So the point is that uh, you know the bustle hasn't come back, and the corset hasn't come back. So certain ideas die out. Infanticide, the old fashioned infanticide, uh, obviously has been gone for a very long time. Steve Pinker has a whole um, book or two books now, basically de- you know tracing the decline of uh, various kinds of violence um, around the world, and also uh, Mary Tupi at the, at Cato. Um, so. What happens is that some things really do go out of fashion and they never come back. Um, you could argue that abortion is a form of high tech infanticide. And to a degree, infanticide in that sense has come back. Uh, at one time, it was basically inconceivable that you could have legal abortion. Of course, since, uh, since the seventies, that, that's changed. So ideas go back and forth. And uh, what, what people like would be to say that, well, if you reach a certain level of GDP per capita or something, you don't go to war. Then as long as you stay above that, you're okay. In other words, it's determined by GDP per capita or something else, something you really measure and get your hands on. But in my view, uh, that's not true. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's basically simply a matter of people's changing attitudes. But I, I do want to say, as with s- slavery and dueling, Sometimes ideas can die out and never come back.
2: Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.